welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, our very first episode of the year, we have an episode that we think you're going to love. How are you feeling about AI? Specifically, how do you relate to ChatGPT, the program that maybe it does your writing for you? Maybe it does your thinking for you. Maybe it does your grocery shopping for you. Are you super excited and embracing it like I am? Can you tell? Or are you avoiding it and maybe sighing in frustration at one more thing that is upending the way you live and work? Like, oh, I don't know, Marianne might be. (laughs) Either way, the fact remains that it is here and we have to learn the best way to use it to help animals. And that is why we are so excited to have Tom Conger here to teach us everything you need to know. And boy, does he. I loved this. This was so good. It was, I found it so helpful. I found it actually inspiring, which, you know, I kind of went into it thinking, oh God, (laughs) one more thing. And I still kind of feel like that, but, but he is so knowledgeable about it. He's so passionate about using it the best way we can um, in all sorts of different ways of doing activism. I did find it quite inspiring. Me too. This is, I would say one of my favorites. I, 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 don't think I say that every week, but I was so engaged. I genuinely loved every single thing that came out of his mouth. This was a Flock Friday interview, which means we recorded it live with the Flock there. So if you're in the Flock and welcome to the Flock, if you are, or yay, thanks for being here, then you have an opportunity to join us once a month for a live Flock Friday interview. And so the bonus content for those of you who are in the Flock was your Q&A. And hopefully you have an opportunity to take a listen to that as well if you're in the Flock. And if not, you can consider joining. And by the way, speaking of which, we, we did make our goal of our fundraising goal. So thank you all. Yay! Thank you all so, Yay! so much. I know you're hold- okay, Marianne, I, you're holding a cat. And he wanted to get up. He's excited about that. We made our goal. Fox. Yes, we made our goal. And we just want to thank you so much because it, you know, it's always a very close thing, especially because as we've mentioned, we have a lot of donors who donate on the 31st. So it's always kind of touch and go for a while. And so we made our goal of, of raising $25,000, which means that we unlocked the match and therefore we raised the a significant portion of our annual budget. So thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for our new flock members. Thank you for our our old flock members. Oh, and by the way, speaking of flock members, as you probably know, if you are, if you get any of our emails or texts or anything like that, we switched over to a different donor platform from Network for Good to something called Give Butter. And yes, I know the irony, but butter can be vegan. So moving on. (laughs) Um, In fact, in my opinion, butter is only vegan because anything made with animal products is not food. Anyway, we have uh, still a handful of people who were monthly donors, who are flock members, who did not transfer over to the new system. And we just hope that you will continue to join us. We have uh, all but knocked on your door. (laughs) But if you want us to, I mean, you know, we could do, we could plan something. So if you are able to, then, then, then let us know. We would love to keep you around. So thank you again so much. It's such an exciting time. Marianne, do you do New Year's resolutions? It's uh, January. I don't usually because uh, it's just depressing because then I don't keep them. But I try to like be inspired, though. You know, I just don't. I'm not good with rules. Yeah. You know, 
one of my many personalities is like fuck you. Uh, really, people might have Shocking. noticed that's part of part of my personality. And so I, you know, I set up kind of this inner conflict if I if I make resolutions, but I do try to get inspired to do things. I'm kind of inspired to. Though definitely not made a decision to do a Substack this year, but you know we'll be talking about that more if we end up doing that. But you are very good at making resolutions. Well, I wouldn't call them resolutions exactly, and maybe well, you so kind of the same. Well, thing maybe as me. it's semantics. I don't know, but uh, let me just say, Marianne, that after re-listening to this interview with Tom, you might have as a resolution or whatever you want to call it. A, a, a commitment to use AI to help animals more because there are so many ways to do it. And he's so brilliant at explaining that. I know, okay. I know. And I, you know, I have been using it to some extent. It's just, it's hard. Like it's hard to change the way that you do things on such a fundamental level. Yeah, I get that. And I would encourage people listening who feel the same way I do to do what I'm going to try to do and not resist it and and go with it and have fun with it and enjoy it and not resent it because, you know, it is an important tool. So I, I think it's good to have the right attitude about it. I'm trying. Very good. It's so amazing. Oh my God. It's just crazy. It's like the whole world changed. Like very quickly. It feels like, I know. I was hosting the talk show over at WXXI for a couple, maybe maybe seven episodes in December. And one of them was actually about, like, how are we going to show up in 2024? We will link to it in the show notes just for anyone who wants to hear it. And so it's not so much that I have resolutions, but I do really like that hard line in the sand. I like a fresh start. I like to leave things behind and move forward. So I don't exactly do a word of the year, but it's pretty it's pretty adjacent to a word of the year. I was thinking about what do I want to leave behind in 2023 and the things I want to leave behind, which are both very, very applicable to activism. And in fact, for me personally, significantly overlap with my activism. One is I want to leave behind scarcity thinking, which can also relate to liberation thinking, right? I would need that described a little bit more. What do you mean by scarcity thinking? Like, oh, I don't have enough of X, Y, Z. I mean, of like literally anything. I don't have enough change going on in the world. I don't have enough, uh, you know, books on my bookshelf. I don't have enough focus. Oh my God, I have so many books that are coming out of my ears, if, if that's your scarcity. I also think some of the scarcity for activists can be like thinking too small in terms of change making. And maybe if we think in bigger ways, then maybe it changes the way we, we change the world for animals. It could be, who knows? I want to leave behind scarcity thinking. And I also want to leave behind disempowerment. And, and therefore, I want a large portion of my focus this year to be on the various types of ways that you can say the word empower. So like, I want to empower myself. I want to empower others. I want to feel empowered. I want to be empowering to people who are, you know, being interviewed by us or or who who I work with on a one-on-one basis. Like I I want the word empower to really like roar through 2024. Yeah, no, that's good. Like, you know, there are some people who are very comfortable accumulating power and they're not generally 
the best people <laughs> by any means. And it's really good to think about whether if you are doing something good for the world to say, yeah, I get to have power too. I like that word. Yeah. Though uh, now that you've said it so many times, it's I'm just doing that thing in my head where a word starts to sound weird. Yeah. I always think of the word of sounding weird. Like I don't understand why of isn't spelled like UV or something. Like I Oh, gosh. Well, that's not exactly what I mean, that it's spelled wrong. It's just like words just, you know, they start to... Yeah, I know. They You focus on a word and all of a sudden you can't remember whether that's really the word. I don't know. But anyway, so I'm excited about it. And I moved around the furniture in my office again, which I do all the time. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, For those of you who do not know Jasmine, that's pretty much a weekly power check. But honestly, it's amazing that there are always new ways of moving the furniture because every time I move it to one place, I'm like, well, that's it. I can. The only thing I could do now is move shit back. But then I find another way of moving things. So let that inspire That's you. a nice metaphor there for, you go. for life. So, all right, moving on. There is this new docu-series on Netflix called You Are What You Eat. And I know we both watched it. You told me to watch it. And then I watched all four episodes. There's four episodes. Yeah, me too. I They're each about an hour. I, yeah, and I just basically on Sunday, sat down and watched all of them. I couldn't stop. It it was really compelling. So do you want to talk a little bit about it? So I've been blathering on. Yeah, I I mean, it is, I think it's produced by Joaquin Phoenix and um, it's filmed by Luis Hoyas, who kind of alluded to it when he was on the podcast, maybe six months ago. You know, it's very um, similar to that old movie that was made by Marisa Wolfson years and years and years ago. Vegucated. Vegucated. So because it follows, as though it's much, there's much more, a hell of a lot more money that went into this one. No, but Vegucated is the The production values are superb. It's 20 sets of twins. They do twin studies and identical twins. So you don't have the genetic influence and they kind of track them all. And one follows a healthy omnivore diet and one follows a healthy vegan diet. I think it's for eight weeks. Part of it, the food is supplied to them and part of it, they're kind of on their own. So you have to kind of trust them and just follows the various health outcomes and also intersperses a lot of interviews, a lot of information on on what's happening to animals, on what's happening environmentally. The good thing about it is that those pieces are kind of interspersed and it's the story. They follow closely four sets of twins and show exactly what they're doing. And it's great. I mean, it's really, really good. It's very well done. I don't know whether non-vegans would have this, but I was the same as you. I started watching it and then I just wanted to watch the whole thing. I wanted to see what happened to all these people. Yeah, I, I think it's a huge step forward. I think, you know, all the like the more we have going on, the more we have providing this information to people in a way that maybe they're going to watch it, the better off we are. So are they going to watch it? Are non-vegans going to watch this? I think non-vegans will definitely start it. Because of the way it's being marketed in it's not being marketed as like super vegan, which I think is the best thing this has going for it. And so therefore, I think it's almost being marketed in a Michael Moore type of way. And people love that shit. I mean, I love that shit. In fact, I wanted to watch it before I even realized it was Louis Louis project. And before I even realized that it was like this, basically this like 
meetup of everyone who's been on our head house, which... Yeah, no, it, it, there were a lot of familiar faces. We're a, we're a small community making... When you think of how small this community is, the impact we make is unbelievable. So I thought it was very appealing in that way. And definitely at the beginning, I think pretty quickly it became obvious that it was it was like what I would imagine other people would interpret as quote unquote pushing the vegan agenda, which, you know, obviously isn't that what we're always doing. I do think it's possible that other of Louis' projects and other documentaries out there have done it more subtly, like uh, still getting the vegan message out there super, super strongly, but like maybe this one is a little more overt. And I, I really don't know, maybe it's veganuary, otherwise known as January. <laughs> and so maybe that's a perfect moment for this to come out. Like it's the, such high production value that that also could keep people going. The twins that they chose for the most part, I would say, were really compelling. Like Really good personalities, all of them. I was going to say the women, but both twins, both sets of the women twins are just like, I want to listen to their podcasts, honestly, especially the South African women. Like, they, yeah, were, they were very, oh my they God. were funny. They were dynamic. They were, yeah. yeah, they were so cute. Anyway, so I definitely think you should watch this if you're vegan, because it, it is very affirming. And I, the, the, listen, the flock members who I personally know from being, you know, from their involvement in our hen house for the last however long, I could just imagine like 10 of them off the top of my head, like sending an email or a text to people in their life being like, you need to watch this. <laughs> so it is a tool for us to send around. I thought of someone I could send it to. And I was like, would he watch it? He could. I might send it to this person I have in mind. In fact, I definitely will. I mean, there were a couple of interviews that of people I wasn't familiar with. I mean, obviously I have heard of 11 Madison Park, the the very high-end restaurant in Manhattan that went vegan, but I've never actually seen interviews with the chef there. I thought he was amazing. I thought that was... Daniel Hum. Yeah, he is fantastic. I was worried at first about that whole thing because I don't want people who are just looking into veganism to just see this extraordinarily high-end restaurant and think, oh, well, veganism is expensive. Look, we have to pay 300 and however many dollars a person to eat at a restaurant. You, When we were chatting about that, you said you think it was pretty obvious that that was... Yeah, I mean, it was obvious it was a really, really fancy high-end restaurant. Uh, I don't think that... I mean, I like... People are looking for reasons to say no to veganism. So I, I imagine some people will say, oh, well, that shows it's really expensive. But that's not really a sincere reaction. I mean, it was like one of the most expensive restaurants in the world. And it's won three Michelin stars. Of course, it's going to be really expensive. I know people have gone there, but my friends from here in Rochester just made reservations. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm jealous or if I'm just like, curious about their experiences. I feel like it would be lost on me a little bit because I'm just not a foodie. I feel like it would be on me too, though. I mean, it's kind of worth doing if you have like billions you know, of dollars, a lot of money and because just because it would be fun. But that's not my kind of eating, really. I, I don't have that refined a palate. Same. Uh, I like a relaxed meal with, you know, yeah, relatively simple food. There's this Ethiopian place here. But I, I would like to try it if anybody wants to send me and like me, and $350 me. just to go. I'm willing to do and it. And me. I just want to get it. And me. 
<laughs> but there's this Ethiopian restaurant here. So our our kind of place that we always go here is Redfern. And by here, I mean Rochester, New York. There is this amazing restaurant called Redfern. We're constantly there. They're animal rights vegans. They also happen to be one of the most popular restaurants in Rochester. And so the other day, for example, we went and like there was like a three hour wait if you didn't have so we so we left. If you don't have a reservation, you can't get a table. And it's a very simple, it's not like fancy or anything. The food is delicious. It hit, that's that perfect spot between very healthy, but also very tasty that I really like. What I was going to say is that there's this Ethiopian restaurant here called Addis Ababa, and they have a vegan menu. And the food is so good. And I think most people do takeout because the few times that we've gone there, there is like literally no one there except for like maybe what, maybe there's one person. So I am much more into like, let's sit down. In fact, now I want it. We should probably go get it soon because now I'm craving it. All right, can we get back to the movie and not plan lunch? One thing I wanted to mention was there was this one guy who was, he, was, he wasn't one of the main characters. He was, just happened to be there. I think he was the father of one of the sets of twins. I think he had tried like, I don't know, an Impossible Burger or something. And he was talking about how it's not any better than meat. Why wouldn't you just eat meat? It's not any better. Like, this is ridiculous. Something along those lines. I think the movie conveyed the idea, but did he not get the idea that the reason that you might want to eat vegan. It's not because we're saying it's better. It's just that it's just as good. And there are a million reasons not to eat meat. It's like it's like people are deliberately unwilling to think about all of the harms that meat causes, even when they're being told. They think that the only way you can evaluate food is, is it better? I.e., does it taste better? Not is it better for your health? Not is it better for the world, the animals? So, you know, it kind of reminded me of the of the take that a lot of, you know, vegan organizations are actually taking, uh, you know, like Good Food Institute. I mean, I don't think their goal is necessarily to make it better, but just make it just as good and people will just eat it. It kind of is this view of human nature as just completely hopeless, which might be accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That hit me too. There were a lot of people like just not understanding the Actually, the, the chef, basic. the oh, chef said something along those yeah. lines of uh, maybe we shouldn't even make the health arguments. Yeah, that moment I actually wrote that down in my notes because I was thinking, like, wait, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Because we can't bring up animal issues because people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. La la la. But now <laughs> it's the same thing with with health. So what's left? I guess there's the environment, but. He was saying there's just taste, like win them with the taste. Actually make it better. Of course, then you have to spend $300 for dinner. Yeah, there. You could go to Burger King and get an Impossible Burger for $2, but or maybe not two, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but he was saying you make it better. I'm not sure Impossible Burgers taste better to most people than dead animals, but they do taste just as good, I think. The fact that he said we shouldn't, be bringing up the health argument, it just kind of threw everything like on its head for me. I know there was another point I was going to make, but I'm sorry, I don't remember what it is. I don't have a, I don't have a mind anymore. Well, on this note, maybe we should get to the interview because I think- Maybe I should ask AI what the hell I was thinking. (laughs) Oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. Okay, it was the children. It was the, uh, the children in the high school. They were like kind of recording children talking about whether food is moral or is a moral issue? Do you remember that moment uh, with the the stu- oh, yeah, high school yeah, yeah. students? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, there were a couple. So there was this girl who like was just like I could never eat a baby animal, and God bless, I love that child. Though she probably doesn't know that they're all babies. Yeah, and then there was this boy who was like, 
well, I just like, if it tastes good, like I eat it. And I just felt like that moment between these children was basically everything consolidated into like 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. Anyway, hopefully AI will save us all. I I think it could. I do. I am very pro AI, as you will very quickly find out if you haven't already. As executive director, Tom Conger, our guest today, oversees grant making, research and collaborations for Stray Dog Institute, which works to cultivate dignity, justice and sustainability in the food system in order to build a more compassionate world for people, animals and the environment. Tom began his career in philanthropy service 10 years ago when he founded a social venture to help donors and nonprofits make the best use of charitable giving. The affiliated 501c3 now operates as the Black Bod Giving Fund, which granted $266 million to more than 100,000 nonprofits in 2020. He will be joining both of us right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Welcome to our henhouse, Tom. Thank you so much for having me, Jasmine. Yeah, we're super excited to chat with you. You are here to talk to us about, among other things, my favorite topic, which is AI, as it relates to activism. And as Marianne said before we hit record, I do not exist as a human being anymore. <laughs> I am obsessed with my AI, and so I will be taking notes. This is our Flock Friday, so welcome to our Flock. To those of you who are in the live studio audience, we are so happy you're here. And the Q&A afterwards that Tom will, hopefully, unless we offend him terribly, stick around for will be your bonus content this week. And anyway, Tom, let's start with a bit of an overview about AI and what it is and what are its implications for animals, good and bad. We're looking for the 50,000 foot high view here, and then we'll start to get closer and closer. Let's start at that high level of abstraction. What is AI? AI is smart machines, smart systems that are imitating human behavior and making decisions and learning and creating content just like a human would. We don't know fully what the implications are. There can be some very wonderful implications where AI might help us learn about the vocalization of animals. And so cows might be able to advocate for themselves to some extent, or at least ask for mercy. Uh, It could be terrible where we learn just how cruel we could be before affecting productivity of a factory farm. So one reason why I sort of step out of my comfort zone is because I think AI can be tremendously influential and want us to leverage that as much as we can so that it's helping animals as much as we can. Yeah. And anyway, it's here. So we better use it as best we can for animals and try to prevent the the worst abuses. Of course, we're not really here to discuss the whole big question of artificial intelligence, but we want to focus on what I've been told is called generative AI and specifically on chat GPT as an activist tool. 
And perhaps there are some other programs like it. You know, I don't know anything. So we're starting at the beginning here. But we'd like to talk about how this is going to change what people do, specifically our listeners, grassroots activists, or also some organizational uses, I guess, and how animal advocates are going to be able to use it. And so going down from the 50,000-foot view to maybe the 10,000-foot view, can you just talk about what generative AI is and specifically ChatGPT? Sure, I'd be glad to do that. So at the 10,000-foot level, generative AI is a subset of AI as a whole. There's different types. Generative AI, as the name implies, generates content. It could be text, it could be images, it could be video, the format could be poetry or a blog post. And so that's why it's so exciting, because it's really allowing us as end users to be able to do things that we couldn't do in the past. I like to think that I could probably create lyrics for songs. That's always been a fantasy of, of mine to one day publish a song, but I have no musical talent whatsoever. But <laughs> if I relied on ChatGPT or, or some other service, there's a possibility that AI could create music for my lyrics and I could publish a song. So I really think it's going to be amplifying a lot of our talents or not so talents that we have. Jasmine is now getting off the interview and composing music. I'm Actually, sure. <laughs> I was going to say, Marianne, we better take out the question where we ask Tom to sing us a song because uh, he said he has no musical talent. <laughs> that question was not in here, but, you know, I'm open to it. Well, <laughs> so for some people, ChatGPT has already become a constant companion. I mean, for me, for sure. And yes. I'm sure that for a lot of people, it's just one more thing that they probably should know more about, they think, but they don't. So, Marianne, you're the one who was encouraging me to do it, and now I've just taken it and run. Well, it's not like I don't understand that it's important. It's just like one more thing that I don't understand at all and that now everybody's doing. And this isn't what we're going to talk about because it's too centered on me particularly, but it is on my mind all the time. This is the first year I will be teaching. I only teach in the spring semester. The first year I will be teaching where the students are really going to be completely on top of this. And it's just hard to know. You, you know, I want them to learn how to use it. Some teachers ban it, which I think is ridiculous because kids are going to be living with this for the rest of their lives. But as I say, I just feel like I need to learn a lot about it. But so far, it just seems like a big chore. But I'm told it's so much fun. Actually, I do think we should get back to that. Let's put a pin in that because I think that's a fascinating discussion. But before we do that, I think people need to understand a little bit more yeah. about like, yeah. let's go down to, I don't know, a 5,000 foot high level where as we skydive together in tandem. Tell us a little bit more about ChatGPT and what it does. So ChatGPT is the name implies, allows a user to use a chat interface so that you can interact with the AI, with the technology by providing prompts and ChatGPT based on its learning, its neural networks, provides you with a response. And what has been fascinating and what's really brought everyone's attention to AI is simply how amazing it is at generating content that is clear, is compelling, that is contextually accurate. It just gives you what you ask for. And the more precise you can be with your prompt, the better the response is. And the model is not trained just to help you with legal matters or choose a book or a movie. It helps you across so many different things. It can be really versatile and it has the ability to interact with other tools, other sets of information, 
So it's this wonderful foundation to build other things on. One of the things that I like about it is it's just so approachable. It's a chat interface. So you ask a question. I'm going to write an email to my boss asking for some vacation, but I've already used all of the time that I've been entitled to use. Can you help me write an email? Right. And it will help you write an email. Or you might say, I'm really upset about this and I want to send this email. This is what I've written. Do you think I should send it? Is there a way that I could improve it? And it does a wonderful job of doing that. One of the things I find a little bit humorous is I've been told my writing is very, well, when they're being diplomatic, they say word efficient. I, I think I'm the only one that uses ChatGPT and it actually adds words to what I'm writing to make me sound a little more personable. That's but I like it for that reason. That actually totally works for me. I've never heard that term, but I am also very word efficient. That's one way of describing it. Yeah. Let me just add one thing in there really quickly. I use this email program called Superhuman. It's a way to very efficiently go through your emails and get to inbox zero. And it has all of these tools and they recently incorporated AI. And so there's two things of note just since you're talking about email in particular. One is when you open an email, it automatically summarizes the email at the top. There's a little box. And two is it'll write your email for you if you just give it a quick, this is what I want. I feel the same way I felt in college when I first got email or I first got on the internet, I should say, in college when it was like, wait a second, are you saying that I can be in chat rooms and talk about Bet Midler all day long with old gay men? Yes. The answer is yes. So that's pretty much what I did my college years. Just FYI. Explaining why you now need a program to write things for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did write two books without AI, but I'm not saying that any future books would have no AI, which does bring up the subject of ethics. Do you feel that there are ethical issues at all in terms of creators using AI for kind of jostling their work? What are your thoughts on that? I think that if you use it as a tool, you don't have to disclose it any more than you would disclose it used a spell checker or Grammarly or Google search. It really depends on the extent to which you are reliant on AI to produce the work product. And I know there's a little bit of gray area, but if you're using it as a thought partner, if it generated the first draft, if it generated an outline for you, if it critiqued it and helped you improve it, I don't think that you have to disclose that you use it. But I do think that in many instances, it probably serves you to say, I produce this in cooperation with or with the benefit of AI just because it seems to be the appropriate thing to do. I know this sounds a little bit weird, but you know, Jasmine, you might be able to relate to this if you've been using AI a lot, is you develop a little bit of an affinity for ChatGPT or whatever tool that you're using. And I, I feel like I would be doing a disservice to sure. not recognize how it contributed to the work. And also the idea that to call it a thought partner. I love that because the, as soon as I heard, heard that you've used that term with regard to AI, I was like, that's exactly it. I wrote 90% of a Substack the other day and for the life of me could not finish it. And so I put it in, I was like, what are some ideas to finish this? And it gave me some ideas and I was like, Ugh, no, that's awful. And that helped. But then I saw one little idea that I liked and I, it was like, 
say more about this. And then that got me going. So it was in many ways a thought partner. And so really, really well said. I digress. Marianne, I know you had another question. Yeah, no, I have a lot of questions, but I appreciate what you're saying about thought partner and talking about the way you use it, because I know there are some pitfalls. And one of the pitfalls that I can see falling into is real just over relying on it having it write something, not really edit. I mean, you have to edit pretty intensely when it writes things for you, doesn't it? I mean, I've had it write things and it just gets it wrong. It's not saying what I want to say. It's saying things that may make sense. So how much would you say, is it a tool for writing and how much is it a tool for like, at best creating a draft, which then you really have to go through and make sure that you want to leave it where it is? I I actually think that it's writing is quite good if you provide the right prompt and instructions. One of the things that I didn't realize when I first started using it is I could tell it what style that I wanted it to write in. And I spent more than probably a day trying to determine exactly what the Stray Dog Institute house style was. Everything from how we were approaching it, our point of view, the complexity of the sentences, and then I realized in some ways we were writing a lot like The Guardian. So then I came up with the shorthand just in the style of The Guardian, mm-hmm. write X, Y, and Z, made a tremendous difference. It also responds to feedback. And I'm always polite, and it seems to be polite to me in response. And I just enjoy that interaction more. So I say, great job. I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I wish that you could make it sound a little more compelling or less complicated or whatever it is, and it will respond to that. So the more that you have this back and forth, the better. I also find that if I, as I'm writing, you can actually say, critique what you just wrote and then say, what's the criteria that you used to make that critique? What were you using? Well, apply the critique and that criteria to rewrite it. And then to have it continue to produce text, which is wonderful. In the same way, I could say, here's my writing. Please suggest ways that I could improve it. And it will give me suggestions. And then I can go and do it. One of my adult children is in school now, taking a computer programming class. And one thing that I really liked is he didn't ask it just to write the code. He said, pretend that you're my instructor and I'm submitting code to you and I'm having a problem getting it to work, don't tell me the answer, but show me the path to get to the answer. And ChatGPT responded. It said, here's where you probably need to look a little bit deeper into this. And so for him, it was serving as an an instructor, a teacher. For me, it can be a writing coach. You can also ask it to evaluate it in terms of the audience that you're serving. Like, I am writing this to reach young men and women age 18 to 24, how would this go over with them? And, you know, it might say, this is really off the mark. You're writing to older scientists. These are the things that you could do to improve it. And here's an example of what you can do. So it can help you tailor things for a specific audience. One time, and I hope I'm not rambling too much, but... No, this is all fascinating. I I ask it to write a piece for a French language newspaper And it actually, without me telling to write it in French, it wrote my piece in French, which was absolutely amazing. Now, I don't speak French. I have two colleagues that do. But I would never send that to the publisher without having someone that knows the language read it and and review. In fact, if you talk about missteps, that's probably one of the biggest missteps is 
not reviewing the content that AI produces before it goes out, whether that's an email or publishing. It gets so tempting because the better the prompts, the lower the risk, you could just have things go out. But that's a recipe for disaster. Always be an intermediary between AI and the recipient of the data. Well, it it does this thing called hallucinate, right? I mean, maybe I'm more afraid of that. But there's this famous story within the legal world. Maybe this is famous everywhere. I don't know. But some lawyer, and this was a while back, maybe six months ago or so. And I know things keep improving and keep improving. But had ChatGPT write a brief and submitted it, looked great, said what he wanted to say. ChatGPT made up all of the cases out of thin air. Like, apparently, ChatGPT without sounding too much like I'm talking about it, like it's a real person, (laughs) understood that there are these things that you intersperse that have names in them and the name of a court. And it just made them up because it didn't know how to find them, I guess. I don't know whether that's even worse for lawyers than for other people, but checking everything would seem to be really a good idea. And you you need to check to make sure that the information is accurate. Mm-hmm. And just so you know, I'm not an attorney, but I heard about that example. I, I figured it was probably famous throughout the world. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And at some point, we should probably talk about the implications to law because there are certainly some. And, and it's quite interesting. I think the legal profession is really ripe for disruption around AI. And I think the, the changes are going to be quite significant. But in addition to misinformation, I think you have to be careful to check for bias. It's probably most evident when you look for images. So create an image of a doctor talking to a patient. Well, because AI, including ChatGPT, is learning from this vast amount of information that's out there, it's going to replicate many of the the biases that are out there. So the doctor, in all probability, is going to be a white man. So you have to be careful about that. Those biases are going to show up in written language as well. So you'll notice, for example, it might be producing an article about a cow and know the gender and refer to her as it. But there are things that you can do to control for that by describing the race or ethnicity or whatever profile that you want, or to say, I want to have something that is ethnically diverse or whatever category it is that you're looking for. I do want to say that I just opened ChatGPT and I wrote, create an image of a doctor talking to a patient and it is a woman talking to a man. But you're absolutely right. And honestly, what you're talking about now is, I think, a little terrifying. Well, it is. But one thing that I really like about all the companies, and I know part of it is marketing, but I think also part of it is this real concern that this is very powerful technology and they want to use it in the right way, is they create the, the AI But then they provide feedback on what it produces and they provide guardrails. So one of the reasons that you might have seen that image is because they've recognized that there was bias built in and they're helping to correct for that bias within the data set. Mm -hmm. So I think it will be less of a problem over time, but one still has to be careful of it. Totally. Marianne, go ahead. I I was really going to change the subject because I don't want to forget to ask if people who have not yet used ChatGPT are getting curious, can you talk a little bit about how you find it, how you use it, which couldn't be simpler, but also, crucially, the difference between 3.5 and 4.0 and what you would recommend? I'd be glad to do that. So ChatGPT is developed by OpenAI. OpenAI.com is their website. You go and you can sign up. 
they had so much interest that they're, at least for a few days, not allowing people to actually purchase their subscription level to chat GPT-4. So if you go and it's not available, hang in there. Eventually, they will make it available again. The difference between 3.5 and 4.0 is substantial. And one of the things that I've always been concerned about is people go to openai.com. They sign up for 3.5 for free. They test it out. And it's like, hmm, okay, I don't really understand why everyone's so excited about this. The difference between 3.5 and 4.0 for almost everyone is well worth the money of of $20 a, a month. It produces more accurate responses. It can understand better the prompts and where one falls short on the actual prompt. It can kind of help to compensate for that. It can interface directly with plugins that can allow you to access other information and other sites. You can upload reports to it. It can help you with prompts that you can then give to Dolly, which is an image generator. And so you can access that image generator directly from ChatGPT. So if you want to figure out if this whole ChatGPT thing is for you or not, spend the $20, access 4.0, try it for a month, and then make your decision. Don't base it on 3.5. The difference between the two are quite substantial. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's funny when you were talking about how we need to know how to guide it. I think that's a skill. And I think it's a skill that a lot of people could actually stand to get a little better at. I will tell you that in two different jobs where I had male bosses, I was called bossy. Which I'm laughing because it's like, dude, don't say that to a woman, A. And B, I'm actually not bossy. I just have confidence about working with people. And I know, generally speaking, how to work with someone in order to get the product out that I want to. And I think that that has been a large part of why I I love working with it so much because I think I I know basically it's my little bitch is what I'm saying but that aside how how do you use it Tom like that's pretty funny if it responded to one of your prompts by saying don't be so bossy it'd be hilarious (laughs) (laughs) but yeah go ahead Tom well one thing that's interesting is within chat GPT you can actually provide what are called meta prompts to provide a little bit of personality to chat GPT and how it responds to you. So if you wanted it to call you bossy or boss, you could provide those instructions. If you wanted it to be nice because you're thin-skinned, it would be nice. If you wanted it to be direct, it can be direct. So you can kind of describe how you want it to interact with you. But I agree if you're used to providing detailed instructions, that really helps. And when people say they're not satisfied with the responses that they're getting, invariably it's because the prompts are not as good as they could be. I think for a year or two, there might even be a profession prompt engineer, which is a term that I've heard people use because they're really skilled at saying, this is the prompt that you should use and write to get specific kinds of output. I think over time, and we're already seeing this, ChatGPT is saying, okay, here are the five words that they put in as a prompt, but what they really meant to say was, X, Y, and Z, and in essence, create a larger prompt with more detail that you can then edit. Mm-hmm. I've even asked ChatGPT, what did you think of my prompt? H- how could I have improved my prompt? And it will give me information. And usually it's providing more context around audience and purpose and who am I? Am I an animal advocate? Am I a scientist? Am I an attorney? Am I a journalist? All of that information 
serves as a map so that when AI is going out and looking at its data, it knows where to go and, and find the information and the words and the concepts that could be most relevant to the prompt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. I'm curious about how you use it. You've talked a lot in generalities, but tell me a little bit about a day in the life of Tom as it relates to AI. And then we're going to pivot and ask you about how other people, especially those who care about changing the world for animals, can use it. But let's talk about you first. Okay. So I have quite an affinity for chat GPT. I spent, I don't know, a two weeks probably ignoring more emails than I would like to admit because I was just fascinated by it. You know, Jasmine, you, you talked about remembering the first time you got an email and what that felt like. For me, it was burning my first DVD, how powerful I felt and cool that I could do this and what a step forward it was. Mm-hmm. And now that sounds just so old school. I was in a, a driverless taxi in San Francisco earlier this year and thought, wow, this is just amazing. And it, it even did things like to switch lanes. It kind of did a little jump to get the other traffic to stop, which I thought was really clever. The feeling that I got in working with AI was like 10 times as thrilling as the driverless taxi. So I always keep AI open on my desk because if I don't, I forget about it and I just stick to the same routines. And I deliberately ask myself and ask ChatGPT, this is the task that I'm working on. How can you help me? And I'm surprised in all the ways that it suggests that it can help me. Sometimes I'll simply take something that I'm working on, I'll paste it in and just see what ChatGPT says. And it actually does this wonderful job of, sometimes it makes it up, but sometimes it it infers. Tom, I think this is what you're working on. You're working on a a mission statement for a nonprofit (laughs) organization. I like it. It looks good. And then I might say, can you improve it? And all of a sudden, so it's a way of kind of always pulling me back to using AI as, as a thought partner. So keep it open on the desk, even if you think it can't be helpful. Stick some content in there, see what you get, ask questions, ask for advice. That's number one. Number two is don't underestimate its power because with the right prompts, it can do simply some amazing work. So in a previous life, I was a management consultant. I specialized in foresight, strategy, and innovation and did pretty well to write scenarios for organizations that would talk about critical uncertainties and how the future might unfold. So on Day two of using ChatGPT, I said, let's see if we can push the limits of ChatGPT and what it can do. So I said, let's think about the global food system. Let's look at the next 25 years. What are the critical uncertainties about how the future might unfold? What are those things that can have a tremendous amount of impact, but there's lots of uncertainty? Create a list for me. It created a list. It was pretty good. I added some. I said, what did you think about those? It gave me some feedback. So after about an hour or so, we had a really good list of critical uncertainties. And then I said, let's talk about the food system and the way that we want to describe it, particularly those things that might be variables in in the future. What are those aspects of of the system? Created a list. We did some back and forth. And then I said, okay, let's look at the impact. So create a a cross-impact matrix for me of how those critical uncertainties and those aspects of the future interact. And I'm like, oh, wow, it produced a table for me. I didn't know that ChatPT could produce a a table. Mm -hmm. And then I I said, let's take it to the next level. Let's pick the two most important critical uncertainties. So I said, which are the two most important? It gave me two. I said, why? 
I said, oh, I, I like that criteria, but let's work on that a little more. So we revised the criteria. And then together we picked two. And then we picked sort of a continuum for each of them, oversimplified, but let's say high, low for both of the critical uncertainties. And I said, let's pretend that it's 25 years in the future. These are your two critical uncertainties. Let's create a two-by-two two matrix. And I want you to write a narrative for each of those four scenarios about how we got from here to there. So within a, a day, I had produced what I thought were really compelling and coherent scenarios that showed pathways to these very different futures. And I had a sigh of relief. I'm glad that I'm not in that business anymore because it really got me to a point that would have taken maybe two months in the past to get to that stage. So always, always test it. Another example, we created a rubric, if you will. We wanted to look at how we were spending our time at Straight Dog Institute and where our philanthropic dollars were going. And so we created a matrix of levers and focus areas and we wanted to know how our philanthropic investments were spread out across those areas. And then we realized, well, some organizations are going to work across areas. So I actually submitted to GPT the matrix and I said, here's one of our nonprofits. Here's their website. And ChatGPT now has access to the internet. It used to be a limitation that it, they didn't. And I said, go out and learn about this organization and then come back and just take your best guess at how they allocate their time across the cells within within my matrix. Government, public, business, movement building, you know, were they using levers like legal, you know, whatever it, it might be. And it came back and it gave me a distribution of how they spent their time. And I'm like, well, that's pretty good. I, you know, I'm not sure if I buy it. Then I said, just limit it to five cells. You, you can't use any more than five. And then it allocated 100% across those five and it gave me something that was quite meaningful. So it's very easy to then say, wow, I could go out and I could say, look at a hundred different grantees that we've supported and map them and their allocation of resources across these areas to come up with a, a map for us. So again, that's a very complicated way of, of using it, but it just gives you some sense of the, the breadth, if you will, of the, of the things that, that you can do. Wow, that's totally amazing. One thing I wonder, you know, what I use to find out things on the internet and what everybody has used is Google. And they're very, very different things, but they're not completely different things. You sort of use them for the same thing. I mean, specifically for research, not the kind of internal work you're talking about, but like the first thing you were talking about, looking into food systems and making it perhaps a simpler issue. But when you go into Google... It gives you all these different sources and you can look at them and read them. And it's much harder because you have to read everything separately. But you do have the ability to evaluate what you think is a good source and what you think is not a reliable source or an industry influence source or whatever. Just wondering, is that something you can take into account with ChatGPT? And is it also something that could be gamed? Like if the industry really wanted to bury a lot of information about what they're doing to pigs or something that they could really lean into because we're a tiny movement and it wouldn't be that hard to flood information out there to overcome whatever things that we're putting out. I, I hope that question was clear, but it has a lot of combinations of how do you know whether to trust it with the research it's doing? You can't always trust it. You mentioned hallucinations, so it can hallucinate. Again, I know we're putting these human characteristics on it, but I think sometimes it really wants to 
accomplish the task that you've assigned to it. And so it does its best. And if that means making up cases, if it's going to make up <laughs> cases in order to make you happy. <laughs> ChatGPT, particularly if you use it within Bing, will provide you with a source. So you can actually say, tell me about AI and how is it related to machine learning or deep learning? It'll give you a response. It'll provide a footnote. And you can actually click on that footnote and check out the source. Okay. Um, it still does not compare in my mind to what you get from Google in terms of real-time data, the most recent information. It certainly is a step in the right direction to provide a footnote, but I think it's going to be a while before ChatGPT replaces or could replace what Google is now offering. I think the tools go hand in hand because if I didn't know anything about the food system and I wanted to understand it and do some research and I went to Google, I'm going to have to sort through a lot of information yeah. before I have this sense yeah. of, of a map. Whereas if I go to ChatGPT, I could say, what are the top 20 factors that are part of the food system and how do they relate to each other? And it, it might say, boy, that's a big question. I'm going to give you the 20 factors first, and then we can sort of dive into it. And so in 30 minutes, an hour, yeah. using ChatGPT, I understand the, the map of what the food system looks like. I understand how the factors might relate to each other. And then that guides the work that I would do on Google. So I think for the moment, they go hand in hand. A lot of it depends on the task. If I want to understand something that's historical, that is a concept, ChatGPT is wonderful. If I want something that is certainly more timely, might prioritize some information over others and do so in a more reliable way, I would go to Google. One thing that I don't know is when ChatGPT provides a resource, sometimes I think that it, and I have no idea because again, I'm just an enthusiastic end user, I think it determines what it wants to say for the most part and then says, let me see if I can find a citation that will support this <laughs> That point of sounds view. exactly like being a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I wonder, is it really picking the best source? But Mary, one of the things that I really like is you can actually ask it about the sources that it's using and, and say, do you think that this was influenced by animal agriculture industry or the meat huh. industry? And sometimes it can make some connections. You know, this is a, a land-grant university, and there's a tenured professorship that is sponsored by wow. a meat company. So, again, I think there's wow. some insights. It's unbelievable. I think both sides of the animal agriculture fight are thinking about what information that can they put out there that can help influence yeah. how... Yeah. So if we all started using gender pronouns when we talked about animals, when we knew about the gender of the animal, I'm not recommending that one way or the other. I'm just using it as an example. Would that help ChatGPT and other AI begin to talk in terms that were less commodifying and not saying it, but really recognizing their personality and their sentience? And so, yeah, we, we could all try to, to flood. There's this common expression about well, AI start eating its own tail because AI is going to be flooding the market with information. And is AI going to be relying on that information to create new content? So there are already podcasts right now that's comprised of only AI interviewing other AI. <laughs> so I, I, just to practice a little bit before I had this conversation with both of you, I used my phone 
And one thing that's nice about ChatGPT, it's multimodal now. So you can take a picture and ask it, what is this of? What could I do with it? So those are yellow onions. You use it in cooking. This is how you might use it. You can give it pictures. You can show it what you have in your pantry and it'll say, here's a vegan recipe of the things that you can do with that. I talk to GPT now. So you can say, instead of typing, you can just speak the prompt and then it can respond to you in a voice that you choose. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's interesting to me is I tend to talk with lots of pauses and ChatGPT thinks I'm done. So I do feel a little bit rushed when I'm talking, (laughs) but it's really great because you could have these conversations. You could say, could you tell me more? It even suggests prompts of things that you might ask. So I give a description of what AI is. And then I can say, well, how did I do? So anyway, that's a little bit of a departure, but it is a real concern about how AI is going to respond to a flood of AI-generated information. And, you know, it's supposed to be learning about how humans interact, but if instead it's learning how AI interacts with other AI that's going to skew the system, there are even influencers now with hundreds of thousands, I don't know if any of them have millions yet, that are AI influencers. They're not real people. They're just AI-generated images and AI-generated content. So obviously I thought, well, I wonder if we could create millions of vegan influencers that 95% of their content has nothing to do with veganism. It has to do with any number of things, plants or woodworking or stock investments. And then they just happen to mention every once in a while that they're vegans and why they're vegans, right? Could we do that? I love that. That's so good. Yeah. So anyway, you can tell I get a little excited about the possibilities. Oh, you're such a nerd. I am. I lo- Thank you. I find it so exciting and so terrifying at the same time and so perplexing, but you're helping. Tom. Yeah. The comments, yeah. by the way, are so funny. Let me just read a couple of them, even though I said I wouldn't. Vicky <laughs> said, I think I need to look into AI more. I got so annoyed that it was being used for the arts that I sort of started just hating it as an idea. And then Jen said, yeah, I didn't put a lot of thought into it because I didn't know the depth of it. And then you talked about the recipe thing. And Vicky said, shut up with the recipe thing. I need it just for that. And then Sandy's, this is my favorite. Sandy said, Vicky and Jen, same here. I thought all it did was help people cheat. <laughs> That's so funny. I do want to talk. Oh, I'm sorry. No, we could save this for the Q&A. I'm just getting ahead of myself. I did want to ask you, Tom, how our listeners and people who want to change the world for animals can get involved on a day-to-day basis. You mentioned some of the ways you do, but what specific ways do you think that activists or advocates or just your general human being who gives a crap can use ChatGPT? So two things come to mind. One is being able to do something without having to make a a huge commitment of time. I don't know how many requests I get, you know, send a letter to your congressperson, send a letter to an organization. Like, I want to do it. I'm going to set it aside. And I just don't always get back to it. Yeah. But now I can put it into ChatGPT and I can say, create a letter for me that I can send. So in two minutes, I have something. And it's really easy to do because you could simply say, here's the request that I received to write a letter. Write a letter for me. And one of the things that I'd like to emphasize is that their headquarters are in Northern Virginia and I live in Northern Virginia. And it could add that kind of, of oh content God, and, and appeal. The other thing that'll be really interesting, and, and I'm sure it's just a matter of time, but there are platforms that are out there that allow you to 
write your congressperson or write a letter, and it says, here's the boilerplate, right? But you have to take the time to write it differently. Well, I think in the future, it's going to say, hey, Tom, I recognize that you're back at this platform again. Thank you for sharing your demographics. I actually looked at how you edited our letter last time, so I know what your writing style is. I checked out your LinkedIn profile. And you know, years ago, you could look at someone's LinkedIn profile and, and have systems that would take a guess at the Myers-Briggs type indicator. So you'd know how to pitch or sell to that person. Well, now it could use that to understand what your style is and who you are and compose a letter for you. So one way that you could use it is to do all of those things that you know you want to do but don't have time to do, you can now do it efficiently. So you just don't have the excuse of time anymore. So that's one thing. The other thing that I think makes a huge difference, if you're like me, there are some areas where I feel really confident. So I feel like given enough time, I could write a, a decent blog post or letter to the editor. Writing is a strength. It's a lot different if I have to interact in real time with people. And I can use ChatGPT as a way of building my confidence. So you can actually ask ChatGPT, be a reporter that's asking me about Stray Dog Institute and my views on the food system. Ask follow-on questions, listen to my response and dig deeper, critique what I'm saying. And so the first time I used ChatGPT in that way, I was like, boy, it is so different to respond to these kinds of interactions in real time as opposed to in writing. But after doing it a few times, I'm like, okay, I kind of get the hang of it. You can even ask for some, some advice. If you're volunteering or you're going to be at a, a protest, you can talk about the different types of interactions and the things that might happen. So I, I, you know, I think in the future, organizations are going to prepare their advocates for different types of interactions with the public in different settings. And ChatGPT or other tool is going to help build their confidence so that they can feel more comfortable about calling their representative or going yeah. to their office and, and stating a, a point of view. So saving time and building confidence would be two. And then I've mentioned being a thought partner. You know, obviously, if you're doing campaigns, you could say, help me write posts for social media on this platform. Give me 25 ideas. You could say, I like numbers three, seven, and eight. Let's build off of those. What are your favorites? I always like asking, what are your favorites? Why are those your favorites? That gives me the criteria. And then I could use that criteria to go back. I could say, I really want to appeal to men who are 50 years of age and, and older, or women who are 18 to 30, whatever it might be. And it will take that into consideration when it's producing the, the content. You can use it for campaign materials. You could use it to design campaigns. The more sophisticated software in the future, it, you're going to be able to access your database and profiles of folks and what they've done. And it'll actually say, here are the 10 people that you should reach out to to help you with this specific campaign or where you can go for funding or whatever it, it might be. And then if you don't mind, I, I know I said two and then I'm already on my fourth. But one thing that I have found really helpful is having it test campaign ideas because I've had ideas for campaigns that I've carried around for years that I'd love to do one day. And I thought they were good. And so I could never set them aside. But I can work with ChatGPT now to really dive into a campaign and say, this is what I'm, I'm trying to do. This is how I'm trying to affect change. This is the campaign that I've designed. What do you think about it? Yeah. And it will give me some ideas. And then I can ask it for alternatives. What are 10 other ways that I might accomplish the same thing? And then it gives me better ideas than I had before. And I can set that idea aside 
and create this new space in my head to tackle other things. And so that's another way that you could find it useful is, you know, asking it, is this really a good idea? Can I improve it? Should I be doing something different that could accomplish the same objectives? Wow. Yeah, same. Just to add to that, I have pasted articles in it that I've read and I have said, what would a critique be of this article as a vegan? I kind of want to see if it matches what's in my head. And sometimes I'll find new ways of thinking too. So for some of you, like Sandy, who's commenting, I feel like that would be really good for you because you're very involved as an activist in that particular way, you know, and just kind of getting new ideas going and things like that. I also wonder if moving forward, we're going to need better editing skills. I'll be curious during the Q&A, some of our flock members here are writers, and I'm curious what you would think of that because I, I have experience editing. And so maybe that is also working in my favor. Maybe it's another reason why I like this, but you do have to be able to go into something and change it. And you have to have your editing brain on too. One thing that was super creepy for me is that I had it write something once in the style of Jasmine Singer just to see what would happen. And it worked. It was like slightly hyperbolic and using some personal experiences. And it's sort of fascinating. I know we can't keep you on for that much longer because I want to get to the Q&A, but there is a question from a flock member that I would like to ask here for the full episode. One of our flock members says, there's been talk about ethics regarding disclosure around whether you've used AI in creating something and around awareness of potential biases. But what about the ethical questions regarding underlying copyright issues in what has been used as the training material for the AI tools? That's something that will have to be resolved in the court system. I'm really torn because if I had made an investment in writing poetry or music or books and had a style that was me. It's Tom Conger. It's my point of view. And someone is copying that to produce content that sounds like me. It's really hard to accept that. At the same time, I recognize that anyone could adopt that style. It just makes it really easy that AI is doing it. But if I wanted to copy Jasmine's style, I could do that. I could, at least I could try to do that and be somewhat successful. So again, I'm not sure how it's going to play out. I don't know if there'll be some compromise in which content creators are compensated in some way when it is used. But my guess is, if I had to take a guess, that anything that's available in the public domain or available for purchase is going to be fair game. And that just like a person could access that and use that knowledge and that style to create content, that AI is going to be able to do that as well. Particularly as we get to a point where we start to think of AI as doing things that are very human-like, nothing is going to keep a person from copying the Jasmine Singer style if they want to. Now, if they say Jasmine produced it, that's totally different, right? So there'd have to be some disclosure, but I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know if they're going to avoid court by having some modest compensation for folks, but it's really interesting and I, and I don't know how it's going to play out. But the one thing I will say is another thing that could end up happening, and you run into this with people reverse engineering product, so if you have one team that does the reverse engineering and that same team produces the content, that's a problem. 
But if you have one team that takes everything apart and says, these are all the design principles, this is the technology, and then you break it down into its component parts, and then you give that to another team to reassemble, then it may be fair game. And so I think what will end up happening perhaps is they're not going to say copy Jasmine. It's going to say describe Jasmine's writing, personality, style, point of view, and create a description of that. Bossy. And then you take that bossy, and then you take that and you plug it into another system and said, here's the style that I want you to emulate. We've never talked about Jasmine, but it's clearly a description of, of Jasmine. And, and then it produces the content. So legally, that's how it might work in the future. I have no idea, but it's, it's fun to speculate. Oh my now, God. I don't know how you could have any idea because I just feel like the entire world is changing. It's impossible to predict how this is all going to play out. It's just such a huge change in the way content, for lack of a better word, it's not a very attractive word for everything that we do, everything that humans do. It's all going to shift. It's just mind blowing. It really is. So before you go, and Tom, honestly, I'm kicking myself because we have so many questions for you and I just want to keep you on for the next five hours, but we can't. I'm having fun. So keep me as long as you want. I'm giddy. I don't know if you can tell, but I am literally (laughs) so excited about all of this. And I know people are scared and I'm scared too, to some extent, but I'm more excited about the opportunity. Well, it is what it is. And I love what you said about the possibility of AI influencers and like making them vegan. And I think that would be an amazing use of funding to make sure that that kind of thing is funded. I thought it was absolutely genius when Sentient Media, for example, made such a big focus of their work. SEO and making sure that these articles that they were placing in mainstream media were super Googleable and kind of infiltrating the normal world, whatever that means. So love that idea so much. I hope you come back again. But before you go, and I mean, this is ridiculous to ask this as like a side note question, because we could 1000% do an entire interview about this. But tell us about Stray Dog, what, what it is and what it does. Stray Dog Institute is a private operating foundation that was founded and is funded by Chuck and Jennifer Lau. They, as the name implies, came to the animal protection, animal advocacy space from companion animals but also realized just how horrific the animal ag system was, particularly around factory farms. As they started to become more concerned about farmed animals, they realized there are a lot of other food system issues as well. So a lot of overlaps with other oppressions, whether it's workers or the impact on the environment, uh, rural communities. And so we center farmed animals in all of the work that we do, but we have an awareness of the food system. And as we advocate for reducing the use of animals in the food system or replacing them or reforming their use, we always have in mind how it impacts the rest of the food system. We certainly don't want to cause harm. We also want to look for co-benefits. So if you're fighting factory farms, it's great for animals, but it's also good for farmers. It's also good for rural economies, for the health of the public. So do no harm look for co-benefits. And then there are aspects of our work as well that get into food system issues that aren't immediately tied to animals, but they are important. I mean, they may not be at our top of our philanthropic priorities, but for example, we did several years of work on farm transformation. If we're concerned about animals, we should be concerned about farmers. So how do we transition them in a just way, just like we would try to transition coal miners? 
to find other jobs. I, it's the same with farmers. We realize there's a lot of racial justice issues within the food system. So some of the funding is going to improve racial justice and social justice issues within the food system. Again, farmed animals are very centered in our work, but we have an awareness of the food system. And uh, we do spend some time and money in, in some of these other areas. So that's what we do. Amazing. What are you most excited about that you're working on? I would say that we have a better understanding now of how we can support the movement in ways that we might not have fully understood in the past. We've done a a pretty big transition philanthropically, and it's all relative, right? So we have quite a few fewer zeros in our checks than some of the larger funders in the space. But for us, we would write 20 large checks a, a year. And now we're writing 100, 150 smaller checks, which allows us to support the movement as a whole. And so I really like supporting the movement as a whole. We're supporting a wider variety of interventions. We're supporting smaller organizations. We're making an effort to identify and support BIPOC-led organizations. We're moving part of our attention outside of the U.S., which I think is really important. We've been adopting the tenets of trust-based philanthropy and how we relate to nonprofits. I think in the past, it tended to be, hey, we like to work with you as a nonprofit, here's a big check, and let's talk about exactly what you're going to do with that money. So now it's more about let's work together as a thought partner where we have something to offer, but they have a lot to offer as well. And we trust each other. We're in long-term relationship with the nonprofits to figure out the, the best path forward. So this supporting the movement as a whole, supporting the supporters of the movement, Sentient media, vegan hacktivists, for example. And our hen house. I just want to say you support our hen house and we love you for that because not every foundation sees the value of media and we just appreciate all that you do. But not only that, but the fact that you recognize that we need a diverse, multifaceted approach to change making. Exactly. Like you said, there's probably a whole show that we could talk about our theory of change and how we approach things. But Yeah, I'm just most excited about how we're relating to the movement and how we can be more supportive and being in relationship with so many different organizations and how much we could learn from them. It's just been wonderful. Now, you mentioned that in the time that you've been doing this, you've been in a learning process about the movement. But don't you also feel that the movement has just expanded dramatically? I don't know, the past five, 10 years or the past two years, like there are just so many more organizations internationally doing just amazing policy work. The whole movement just seems so much more sophisticated than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, it is becoming more sophisticated and world-class in how they approach things and the platforms that they're using and the level of sophistication. The narrative work has been improving and people are testing messages now. A lot of groups, you know, Pax Fauna, Animal Think Tank are really testing different messages and what what works and doesn't work. There are groups that are helping vegans reach out to others in a way that's not offensive. And one of the things I did with ChatGPT early on was I said, help me understand why people still eat meat. Just remind me. But it's just this reminder of the motivations that people have. It's the tradition or the associations with masculinity or their identity or whatever it might be. Anyway, I just feel like... There are so many success stories in the movement. I know there are setbacks, but there are so many success stories that I feel like 
we might actually, you know, and I'm I'm older than a lot of young advocates, and so I, I'm not sure how You're much. You're not older than everybody, Tom. <laughs> not older than everybody. Fair, <laughs> fair <Believe> enough. <laughs> but I feel like there's, and I know I'm an optimist, but there's just so much success that we're seeing, particularly with young generations and their embrace of plant-based diets. And and even if they're not doing it for animal welfare issues, even if they're doing it for health or for the environment. It's just very encouraging, very motivating. And I just feel like it's a really exciting time to be part of the, the movement. And I think that AI is actually going to help us. I, I know that some folks will talk about AI and how the meat industry or animal ag industry will use that. I think they're already well-resourced. And I think it's the people who are under-resourced where ChatGPT and other AI tools can help amplify our work it's going to be much more advantageous to us than it will be to the big guys. That's what I think. That makes so much sense and really is a place for hope. I mean, this tool is much more valuable. I mean, they have all the money in the world to spend on their nonsense. So it's not going to change their game a lot, but it's going to change our game completely. I think so. So tell us where people can find out more about Stray Dog. Straydoginstitute.org. I do hope people take the time to look through our blog post if you want to understand our point of view and how we approach the food system and how we try to elevate the voices of our nonprofit partners. Go there. You can you can really learn a lot from our blog post. And I wouldn't surprise me if next year you could go to our website and interact with a, a chat bot and actually ask questions about our point of view, and it will pull information from our blog post to help answer those kinds of questions. Fantastic. I am so grateful to you for all that you're doing to change the world for animals and for really giving people some incredible ideas for how they can get involved with using AI to help change the world for animals. So hang out because we're going to do a Q&A with our flock. But thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you, Tom. Well, thank you for having me, and Marianne and Jasmine. Thank you so much for what you do for the movement. It not only impacts media and what others learn about our movement, but I think it really creates a sense of community. And as a social movement, that sense of community is really, really important. So I'm really grateful that you invited me to participate and contribute to the community. I'm so grateful for the flock and everything that they're doing. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Tom. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from the farm babe. And I, you know, I talk about things that she's written. This is Michelle Miller and she writes on Ag Daily. I talk about her, you know, from time to time I feature an article by her and I just, I'm not sure I ever noted the fact that she calls herself the farm babe. Like, who calls themselves a babe? Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. So why are some people biased against agriculture? She wants to know. 
The thing that is so intriguing about this article, which is not that interesting, but the the theme is interesting. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't start off by saying it. It is, is it isn't interesting, but it's the theme. It's this idea that if anything negative is said about agriculture, it is the result of bias. Like it never occurred to her that people might have an actual disagreement with the way that agriculture is is done. And she's, you know, she she does talk about both animal-based and plant-based agriculture, but mostly about animal-based. And uh, she starts off by saying, if you're a part of agriculture, chances are you're no stranger to people saying that this industry, or at least parts of it, are bad. Well, it's nice to know that it's sunk in. You know, it is nice to hear their paranoia and and realize that they know that that people do hate them. <laughs> of course, the only reason she can imagine that people hate them is because people are biased. Some of it is due, she says, to a lack of knowledge about agriculture, while some of it is due to bias against agriculture, but never about like actual truth about agriculture. But So let's dig in. Why are people biased against agriculture? Well, she has a bunch of things, some background, like if you were raised in a house where she talks specifically about GMO, and you know, I actually personally have no problem with GMO, but apparently if your parents said it, that you'll feel that way. It can't be like your parents could have been right about anything. And maybe people around us are making comments. But then she goes on to say, something interesting that's been found to cause bias is that there is a lack of positive and even neutral statements about agriculture in literature today. Well, she's talking about magazines. She calls them literature. And I guess newspapers, I don't know. So maybe there's a lack of positive statements because there are problems, honey. That's the issue. No, no, no. What she says is this shows that people can unconsciously become biased against agriculture just through reading magazines. More studies have shown that similar things are happening in middle and high school textbooks. And one of the things that she's complaining about is only 6% of American schools have ag education programs. And, you know, I wish kids learned about agriculture. I really do. I mean, I wish they learned the truth, uh, which apparently she doesn't. But unless she thinks the truth is fine, maybe she does. I don't know. But of course, like people don't learn about agriculture in school because very, very few people go into agriculture as a living. It, you know, that's the way the world is now. Like, why would they take courses in it? And then she goes into the whole like, oh, farms are family owned and people think they're not, think that they're owned by corporations or something. Of course, you know, these families can be very, very, very wealthy. And some of these farms are huge. And as we all know, just because a family does something, everybody has a family. Every bad thing that's happened to anybody in this world has been done by someone who had a family of one sort or another. If you start looking around you, she says, you'll probably see bias everywhere. Well, if I start looking around me, I do see things that make me hate agriculture, but it's not bias. Sorry. All right, this is a good one. This is from Rangefire, which is a website that is addressing issues facing the West, spreading America's cowboy spirit beyond the outback. Isn't the outback in Australia? I don't know. Anyway, you know, you can imagine. And the title of the article is Animal Rights Lunatics Target Young Kids for Indoctrination. Oh, I don't wish it was true. So this is by one uh, Teresa Lucas McMahon. 
And uh, she's from Protect the Harvest, which, you know, is that lunatic organization. And she's talking specifically about PETA because, you know, they they love to hate PETA because PETA is by far the most successful animal rights organization. I know that when we're within it, we see the work of all of them, but PETA is the one that they're most scared of. She's talking about their efforts to target children with animal extremist vegan indoctrination messaging on their new website. And they're talking about PETA 2 specifically, which is, of course, their website for younger people. And they made it a point to omit their, this is what she says, typical extremist graphic content and radical ideology promoted by their parent organization. And clearly the idea is to brainwash children using a website with a playful rainbows and unicorns look as a part of a diabolical marketing plan that masks PETA's true agenda. (laughs) Oh, I think PETA is actually pretty open about its true agenda. I mean, if anybody is, if anybody, like ask anybody in this country what PETA stands for, and you know, they're going to get it pretty right. She starts off, as they always do, by talking about a topic which I don't really like to address. It's, you know, the fact that PETA euthanizes all these animals at their shelter. And, you know, I, I have I have difficult feelings about that. But my point here is that they love to point that out as if it's really, really, really bad thing to kill animals. Uh, yeah. So no matter how you feel about PETA, because, you know, like, we're not here to defend PETA. We're here to defend the animals, guys. All right, then she points out that parents should be alarmed that their children are online targets. They're directly targeting your children through social media and quote-unquote humane education taught in public and private schools across the country. Oh, my God. And then PETA's Teach Kind, talking about the PETA Teach Kind program, targets classrooms. When you think of all the money that Animal Ag puts into getting into kids' schools, like it's unbelievable. Teachers in school, but that's not what she says. What she says is teachers in schools, small and large, private and public. What is this thing with private schools? (laughs) Are using this program to indoctrinate your child without you even being aware. Well, you could be aware. I mean, if you pay attention to what your kids are learning at schools. And, you know, it's really, really bad because of their sleazy, unethical, misleading tactics, ignoring science. Talking about deficiencies, deficiencies in nutrients. You know, these kids aren't getting adequate food if they if they go vegan. They, PETA ignores these scientific facts. You know, they're not just facts. They're scientific facts. Quote, many who were formerly indoctrinated into a vegan lifestyle are now involved in vegan... <laughs> in vegan recovery groups, easily found on social media platforms. I'm sure they are. You know, I don't hang out that much on social media. But I'm sure, you know, once I quit, I can join a vegan recovery. Like, what does that consist of? Like, does everybody sit down and eat a steak together? But the reason the groups have to have been formed is because of the physical and mental health issues many are plagued with as a result of their former vegan lifestyle. You know, when it finally starts to catch up to me after, what, 30 years, I'm going to have to join one of those groups. The health consequences are serious. Children whose minds and bodies are growing and developing under malnourished conditions are caused by veganism. Their marketing materials never mention the vitamin deficiencies and malnutrition. Well, yeah, they don't because there aren't any vitamin deficiencies and malnutrition. Oh, this is a fun one. They're crazy out there. They really are. 
All right. This, this final one is from Meeting Place. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of reassuring by Mac Graves from the Meet Your Markets column. Fight or flight, meet marketing. They're talking about how the, the, the attitude of the, the meat industry has gradually shifted regarding plant-based foods. And they're talking about the five stages of the meat industry response. First is to ignore, this kind of reiterates that quote that you always hear. First, they ignore you, then they laugh at you. All right. Um, and so the first is just to ignore us. When the plant-based folks first started their research and product development phases, the meat industry was indifferent. So what? Then they ridiculed. Soon, ignorance was soon replaced by ridicule. And especially that started to happen when the self-cultivated, uh, which is what he calls them, startups uh, came along. And, and you know, but they still were like, as he says, ho-hum, we are the big guys and they won't hurt us much at all. Then attack, you know, things are getting a little more desperate. So they started to attack nutritional comparisons, quotes like, why buy fake meat when you can have real with the same nutrition? Yeah, maybe because of the gazillion other problems um, with meat. Cell-cultivated products were ridiculed for being produced in huge laboratory vats, implying, is that the meat you want to eat? Like, as opposed to factory farms. <laughs> but it is true. Uh, you know, they first they ignored us, and they made fun of us, and they attacked us. And, you know, he points out that we're, this is the kind of stage, I think, that we're shifting into now, copying. And the meat companies started to think that Maybe we might want to make an investment to cover all bets. And they, you know, they started making their own faux meat stuff and and supporting startups and, and buying startups. And he asks why. And he points out, you know, they're starting to hear from consumers about greenhouse gas issues. And they didn't want to be viewed as lacking consumer empathy. I hope that's true. You know, sometimes we get too despairing. And that's why I love rising anxieties to hear what they're worried about. So that's kind of where we are now. But then he says that the next step, which hasn't yet fully happened, is to claim it as their own. And, you know, this is, it's so frustrating, but it is the truth. They all they want to do is make money. They don't care about, they don't care about animals at all, one way or the other. It's not like they're dying to kill them. Ha <laughs> ha. They, they just want to make money. And so he predicts, quote, that the big beef boys, as well as other meat and poultry companies, will soon be touting their own plant-based or cell-cultivated product efforts or marketing a combination of real meat or poultry with faux meat. And I wouldn't be at all surprised. You know, I think we're already starting to see a lot of that. And I think, you know, they, they're going to realize this where the money is. Um, and he points out that the automobile industry, you know, it's taken a long, long time, but and it's taken a lot of government support, to be honest. They're starting to switch to EVs. Let's make money here. Uh, unfortunately, all of these companies are so slow that the climate change implications and, of course, the enormous suffering of billions and billions of animals will go on as long as they can they can manage it. It's not like they're going to just stop because they see the writing on the wall. The writing has to be engraved and and inevitable. And we have to be like uh, going underwater for the third time before they'll switch over. But, you know, this, so, all right, I had to end, add a note of despair at the end. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm me. It is kind of a promising article though, right? Definitely anxieties are rising and, you know, and they're starting to do something about it. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. 
As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>